Okay, so I'm going to introduce our next speaker. This is Dr. David Rubin. He is the Professor of Medicine and Chief of Gastroenterology here at the University of Chicago. He has many research interests, one of which focuses on novel IBD therapies and outcomes, and today he's going to talk to us about treatment in inflammatory bowel disease. So I'm going to cover a lot of information in IBD, but I recognize that I'm tying some of this together from the prior speakers from the prior days and hopefully putting it in context for everyone, whether you're a gastroenterologist or whether your focus is in a different specialty. I want to start by saying that I, there's a disclosure missing here, and that is that I am not a race car driver. <laughs> um, but every time I hear Diane speak, I figure that whatever she's doing, I should be doing. So I'm going to try to look into that because she's just so wonderful. So during the next uh, 20 minutes or so, we're going to cover uh, a lot of ground, but I'm going to share with you a perspective on inflammatory bowel disease, the current challenges facing us in the disease state, uh, why we haven't done as well as we'd like to with some of our therapies, and the evolving endpoints uh, in our management. We're actually making some good progress. Uh, and in uh, deference to the question from the rheumatologist about uh, the fact that they don't often order therapeutic drug levels, you know, this was necessity-bred invention. When we only had infliximab and we had patients doing so poorly, we really had to start learning and thinking a little bit differently because we didn't have good other options. Um, and I think we've learned some important lessons along the way, and I'll mention that as we go. I'll also talk to you a bit more about some of our newer therapies and where they're being positioned. I would tell you that one of the most pressing unmet needs in inflammatory bowel disease, and perhaps in all of our inflammatory disorders, is sequencing of therapies and choice of therapies. We're still missing those therapeutic biomarkers to tell us which drugs to use and in which order, and we're struggling with that. And I think that uh, until we make some more um, definitive progress in translational and basic science to guide us, uh, we're going to continue to struggle, and it's going to be driven by payers and by prices and by tiering of therapies. So let's talk a little bit about IBD. Of course, uh, everyone in the room, I think, by now is familiar with the classification system we have, and the reality is that while we, while we still talk about Crohn's and colitis the, as two sister disorders under IBDs, the reality is that we've come to appreciate that genetically, immunologically, clinically, prognostically, uh, we probably are talking about more like 25 or even 50 different inflammatory bowel disorders. Why haven't we changed our classification system? Because there's been no uh, progress made in classifying them differently, either for choice of therapy or to change outcomes otherwise. So until we have that characterization in some meaningful way, we won't be. Of course, we recognize the challenges of managing severe ulcerative colitis. I know my colleague uh, Adam gave a wonderful talk on that, uh, and we also recognize some of the challenges of Crohn's disease, and in particular, perianal Crohn's, which really has the most difficult uh, and worse quality of life among patients with Crohn's. Just a reminder of what we see when we look. These are just some um, pictures of different patients with ulcerative colitis, starting with the upper left, which, of course, is a patient who's um, that looks like a normal colon to some of you in the room, but that's actually somebody with colitis and there's a loss of the vascular pattern, but it's clearly healed to those patients with much more severe disease on the bottom left or on the bottom right uh, or in the upper right. And in Crohn's disease, of course, more heterogeneous patchiness, the prototypical appearance would be the deeper appearing ulcers with the surrounding um, hypertrophic tissue. Uh, and uh, full thickness inflammation. Unfortunately, 20 to 25% of our patient population who suffer from perianal involvement. 
So a very difficult group of patients. Uh, I would encourage all of you, if it's not part of your routine, whether you're a dermatologist or a rheumatologist, and when you're considering all this, take a look at the bottom. Often it's going to give it away. It won't necessarily be a watering can perineum like you see on the bottom right there, but it may just be um, exuberant skin tags that the patient was told were hemorrhoids, and fibrotic skin tags are a clue that there must be something more going on. Most of the time when we see perianal disease, it, it pairs with ileal inflammation. That's the pattern, that's the way we see it, but there are some exceptions to that. So one of the big challenges in IBD is that it's rising, as our other immune diseases in this audience well knows. In the inflammatory bowel disease world, the place in the world that has seen the most rapid rise of IBD is Asia. We're seeing quite dramatic rises in carefully collected specimens and, and um, data in Japan, Korea, um, less well uh, characterized, but certainly occurring in China, as well as India, Singapore, uh, every part of the world that's looking. Actually, the highest incidence of Crohn's and colitis right now has been reported from New Zealand and parts of Australia. So we don't quite understand what's going on, but clearly this is a global problem now, and uh, access to therapies and thinking about how to treat these patients is certainly a major issue. Now, the management uh, focus of IBD is finally catching up a bit more to our rheumatology colleagues in the sense that we've moved beyond just treating patients and managing what we called crisis care to more chronic management and more proactive management. We're separating disease activity from disease severity now in both the Crohn's and ulcerative colitis guidelines that have come out in the last year. Activity, of course, how sick the patient is at the time you're seeing them. Severity, much more about prognosis and recognizing the need for patients who have a poor prognosis to be on therapies, um, not just based on how they appear clinically at the time you're seeing them. We also have talked about the use of composite endpoints for measuring disease control. In Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, they've been combined with both symptoms our patient-reported outcomes, and objective measures, and we'll get into that in a few more slides. Uh, of course, m avoiding steroids, especially in maintenance, remains a key component of what we've done. In every study looking at steroid exposure in Crohn's and colitis, it's associated with worse outcomes, a higher risk of infections, and even mortality. And lastly, of course, if we do this in order and we do it effectively and we achieve the degree of sustained and durable remission that we want, we know we can change the natural history of the disease. And I'll tell you that I've been in the field long enough that we have actually seen that occur, and we're proud of it, but there's still a lot more work to do. So what does the natural history change mean? It means less hospitalizations, less surgeries, or maybe a better way to say it is less repeat surgeries uh, for those who have Crohn's, um, and avoiding drug-related and disease-related complications. And a newer goal that we continue to focus on is cost reducing costs of care, making sure that our treatment strategies are affordable and available to the patients who need them. And obviously that's a crisis uh, in the United States and in many other places for all of our diseases. So what are the major challenges that we face? Well, as I've already mentioned, the acknowledged heterogeneity of the disease, the fact that we still have a very large uh, primary non-response. Our response rates and remission rates are uh, nowhere near where we'd like them to be. Uh, we also, of course, have a large secondary loss of response in patients who respond early uh, or those who have been stable, and that reflects a lot of different challenges, including some that Diane so nicely outlined. We recognize that the disease changes over time, and in fact, something as simple as understanding the change 
in the disease expression in a teenager versus a young adult or an older individual has not been adequately explained. Uh, what happens when people, uh, when kids go through puberty and how does that change the way their disease expresses itself? We actually say, see changes in phenotype when they go through that period of time, but that hasn't been appropriately characterized. And of course, patients change over time. They get bigger, they get fatter, they get thinner. There's lots of other changes that occur that we have to keep in mind as well. Now, our traditional treatment strategy for IBD is um, fast becoming outdated, but is still used by payers and still the way we teach some of this. And it has to do with a stepwise approach in which the induction therapy often dictates the maintenance strategy. So if a patient responds to a specific class or needs a specific class to induce remission, we commit them to one of the same therapies or some strategy related to it in maintenance. One of the uh, challenges, however, has been that the inherent approach using this has been that patients have to get sicker in order to get to the next level. They have to have a complication or have a problem. So we're always trying to catch up. We're not doing this in a proactive way. And that's a major shift in our field and one in which my colleagues um, have struggled to feel confident in giving a patient a therapy that maybe they don't see them sick enough to earn. So this is the old error of omission versus error of commission. Colleagues are afraid of contributing to a potential complication or side effect, and therefore they uh, don't use the therapy. And so we have uh, the challenge there of educating our colleagues and also doing good studies that show the benefit of being proactive, both in our choice of therapies and in our dosing strategies, as Diane nicely outlined. So there have been some new changes and new goals in IBD that I'll try to go over. Um, and just emphasizing what I've already said, which is that you know the old terms we used in IBD, step up and top down, the Hail Mary approach, um, last ditch, saving it for last, we still see that and hear that in clinic. Patients and our clinician colleagues will say, I don't wanna use that drug because I need something if the other ones don't work. I'm keeping it in my back pocket. Avoiding at all cost and really reactive management. And now much more individualized or precision approaches to management. I couldn't have set it up better to have uh, Diane Mould speak before me um, and being much more proactive. So we've moved in our field from symptom management, which still is directly related to quality of life and still very important, to deeper and deeper levels of remission. So in our field, that includes uh, objective levels that show that the disease is under control. Endoscopic improvement, mucosal healing, both endoscopically and even now histologically, there's even a nice study that uh, one of our former advanced fellows did that showed that we could even achieve normalization of biopsies in the colon with some patients with the deeper levels of control. So imagine that. I mean, one of the uh, principles of diagnosing IBD is that whenever you do biopsies, even in remission, you should see chronic changes. And now we have evidence that with some of our therapies, we're doing such a good job that the histopathological uh, changes normalize. So we're getting deeper, and the question then, of course, is how deep should we go, and how far do you push, and how much do you escalate our therapies to get where we need to go? And we'll talk more about that. We also recognize that if we just rely on symptoms alone, we have a lot of patients walking around who are still inflamed. The estimate is around 50% of people who will satisfy clinical remission standards, being symptom-free, will have inflammation when you do a colonoscopy for surveillance purposes. And maybe it's even more than that when you consider how much uh, microscopic inflammation there may be. So that's a combination, of course, of patients normalizing their symptoms and the fact that really the body accommodates the disease when it's uh, still active in many situations. 
So we recognize the value of objectively measuring disease activity, and the rheumatologists and dermatologists in the room are saying, what took you so long? So there have been many uh, assessments of this, and looking back at all of our clinical trials, we saw for a while, and people were scratching their heads, why was it that mucosal healing, as defined in some of our trials here with ulcerative colitis, was a higher rate than the clinical remission rates? Um, and that's because patients can have symptoms even when they're healed. So it's the converse. So you can be healed and have inflammation, and you can satisfy clinical trial definitions of healing and still be symptomatic, whether it's due to irritable bowel syndrome or other contributing factors. So we've moved much more in our field, finally, to objective measurements, both scopes and also other surrogates that are becoming acceptable, like serum CRP and fecal calprotectin in our field is really the target we've been trying to move forward. So we've adopted, as many of you have already, um, a treat-to-target strategy in our higher-risk patients. Not in everybody, in our higher-risk patients, the patients at risk for um, all those bad outcomes that I've mentioned. And that, of course, represents choosing the right therapy and then timing specific follow-up with an algorithmic approach to optimizing the treatment or changing your treatments when the patient's in agreement with you. It requires um, knowing what your targets might be. So this is only a consensus paper that I'm sorry to say is already out of date, but a group of us got together at an international meeting and based on available evidence said that in ulcerative colitis, the major symptom improvement should be the absence of rectal bleeding and diarrhea or altered bowel habits, which should include urgency, which is often left out, and endoscopic improvement. And in Crohn's disease, similar um, symptom improvement along with either scope or cross-sectional imaging. In most parts of the world other than here, uh, CT or even MRI of the bowel is very affordable, and therefore it can be used in serial exams to confirm that we're actually getting patients where we need them to be. You can see that the last bullet point, that at the time of this analysis and consensus report, CRP and CalPRO were not adopted, but now we've really moved beyond that, and it is included in our newest guidelines on Crohn's and UC. We know this is possible. This is a retrospective study done by my colleague Bill Sanborn at the uh, University of California in San Diego. He believed in doing this and so, of course, was doing it in his practice. And what he showed is that in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, when patients were agreeable to allow him to adjust their therapy based on the findings on scope or on cross-sectional imaging, on, in general, it took two adjustments, and he was able to get most patients to demonstrate mucosal improvement and uh, also histologic improvement. And of those patients where there weren't other options or the patient refused to allow them to adjust the therapies, you can see there was a statistically significant difference in their um, achieving these types of endpoints. So this is really possible with minimal adjustments um, of our existing therapies. And we heard already from Diane about that, but this applies also to our 5-ASA therapies and some of our other oral immunosuppressive treatment strategies as well. Since then, we've done a number of studies in the IBD world to try and look at this. This was a, the first ever um, randomized cluster design study where they randomized centers in uh, different parts of the world. It did not include the U.S. Um, to look at management of Crohn's disease. And they had an algorithmic approach. And in the algorithmic approach, they drove patients based on their um, um, biochemical markers of inflammation or they let the docs do what they would normally do. And although they missed their primary endpoint, which is on the left there, which was clinical remission at uh, two years, uh, the secondary endpoints of surgery and hospitalization were better in the group that was driving the disease management using CRP and other markers. 
Now, why did they not hit the primary endpoint of clinical remission? Symptom-based, first of all. And secondly, the authors postulated that it was because the patients weren't sick enough to see the separation, or that actually in these different centers that participated in this very complicated study, they um, were experienced clinicians and they were kind of doing it anyway. So the arm that was standardized management or conventional management was actually very close to an algorithmic approach. So it gave us some um, information to guide us in adopting treat-to-target in IBD. And then we had a more rigorous study that had a very specific endpoint of interest. This was called the CALM study. It's the next landmark study in looking at treat-to-target in IBD. This was in Crohn's disease patients who received steroids, and they were randomized on the left to clinical management, which was really driving through an algorithm based on symptoms, prednisone use, and the clinician's um, choice of uh, management strategies. And on the right, the treat-to-target strategy, which in addition to symptoms and prednisone use, used CRP and calprotectin. And very importantly in this study, unlike the last study I just showed you, the primary endpoint was mucosal healing. So different than our other studies looking at clinical outcomes, this looked at an objective outcome read by centralized readers. And although you can see that we still missed the boat in half the patients or more, um, those who were driven by the CRP and CalPRO and the treat-to-target strategy were much more likely to have achieved that uh, endpoint of mucosal healing and therefore gave us some evidence to, to use uh, our therapies with managing with CRP and calprotectin. And in fact, when they looked back and saw how often the treatment was adjusted in that arm of the study, the treat-to-target arm of the study, it was not based uh, on steroid use or on symptoms very often at all. It was driven by CRP and CalPRO. Another way of saying that is that these patients were not necessarily symptomatic. The docs were following the algorithm based on the fact that they still had inflammatory biomarkers that were elevated, and it gave us um, the information we need to start teaching our colleagues that you, if you're using these markers, you have to trust what they're showing you, and you have to move through uh, a treatment strategy in the patients who are higher risk for bad outcomes. So the keys to treat to target in IBD, of course, you need the patient willing, you need the provider informed and understanding what your options are. We need a reliable disease activity measure, and so remember, of course, not everyone makes CRP, and CalPRO is not as reliable in Crohn's as it is in ulcerative colitis, so we sometimes have challenges there. We need available and flexible treatment options, which is why I was asking some of my questions of Diane after her lecture, and we need monitoring strategies after the target's reach. So people sometimes forget that treat to target is not just about getting to the target. It's also about monitoring after you're there to make sure you stay there because the natural tendency of any chronic condition is that it's going to drift away from control. From control. And then lastly, and I won't go into lots of detail today, it does work similarly in de-escalation, or as Diane called it, de-intensification. In other words, you can monitor the targets when you withdraw part of the therapy or you reduce dosing. And it's the same principle. You're just going backwards in terms of your treatment um, approaches, but you're still monitoring and trying to keep them on target when you do so. So now let's talk about the current and emerging therapies. And I know we've had... Um, three days of hearing about this and hearing about these as they uh, um, are applied to many different inflammatory conditions. Um, this is a picture of the gut. At the very top of the screen is the lumen of the bowel. Then there's the epithelial barrier. And then underneath that is, of course, the intracellular space where you have um, the lymphocytes and some other components, including dendritic cells. And then at the very bottom is a blood vessel. So we have now therapies that target all these different areas. Uh, we're, we're not so good at treating the lumen as a way to modify the disease, but I'll comment on that in a few minutes. 
uh, and we have most of our treatments aimed at inflammatory and immune controls, as well, everyone in the room is quite familiar. So in IBD, the way I explain this to our patients and often explain it to my colleagues, is we're just focused on what we see the disease is doing to the patients. Uh, we, of course, don't know the cause of IBD. So that means that most of our strategies are focused on immune modification. And what I try to explain to my patients and my colleagues is that all we're trying to do is to turn down the immune activity long enough so the body can either reachieve homeostasis or reset itself in a way that helps it heal. Uh, of course, we have all the different classes mentioned there. The area of great interest in which you see the most on the internet and we learn a lot about in the lecture after me will hopefully give us some insight is about microbiota manipulation. That's my term for changing what's living inside our guts. Of course, the bowel has over a trillion um, bacteria and fungi living in it, and that's not even counting now what we're learning is 10 times as many virus particles or phages and plasmids. So there's all sorts of other things going on there that we're just starting to figure out. There's very little evidence to support the use of probiotics as management strategies for Crohn's and colitis, uh, and we'll talk about fecal transplant at least briefly um, a little bit later in this presentation. And then, of course, surgery remains a very important option for our patients. I often ask my fellows, what's the most effective therapy for treating Crohn's and colitis? And of course, they always say whichever uh, bio biologic du jour they want to mention. And then I answer, no, it's actually still surgery. And surgery, when we need it, is a good therapy. And we'll talk about that briefly as well. So in the current and emerging therapies in IBD, what this slide shows you in red are all therapies that are in development but not yet approved in Crohn's and colitis. And in black are all the therapies we now have. And of course, infliximab was approved for Crohn's disease as our very first biologic. By the way, it was also our very first therapy ever approved for Crohn's disease at all. Uh, and it also included the label for perianal disease, and none of our other therapies listed here do that. Uh, and then you can see we have the IL-1223 inhibitor currently, and then some IL-23 specific drugs, or P19 inhibitors that are coming and are well known to some of you. The anti-integrin therapies, natalizumab and Vito, and a number of modifications on those. The JAK inhibitors, and all we have is TOFA currently. Uh, and then the S1P1 modulators, there's a couple that are in development, but neither are available yet. So let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, in the United States, we're the only country that has four anti-TNF therapies, and then you could add the six approved biosimilars um, to uh, our uh, regimen. Uh, the biosimilars, again, in the anti-TNF world of IBD in the U.S. is just infliximab biosimilars, although the adalimumab biosimilars were approved by the FDA. They're not available on the market due to an arrangement with uh, AbbVie. Um, and you can certainly appreciate these different agents, and I know many in the room are quite familiar with them. In the IBD world, what we've learned about them is, of course, they work well in Crohn's and UC, and mostly with infliximab, but we certainly recognize they work um, with other agents as well on the perianal disease. Safety is well known. In our world, we um, recognize no solid tumors, um, but there are certainly risks of infection. Uh, more uh, drug is needed in many patients. You just heard a wonderful presentation about why that may be. Loss of response is common, and therapeutic drug monitoring is helpful, uh, certainly in the loss of response group, but also in the high-risk patients after loading. We are now routinely using that in our practice, and you can see where the field is going by learning from Diane. And biosimilars in general are okay. The switch to infliximab, at least one switch, has been acceptable, and it's happening all over the U.S. in our IBD space, and I'm sure in your fields as well. 
The anti-P40 uh, drug used to kinumab is approved for Crohn's disease since 2016. It has a single IV infusion as its loading dose that's weight-based, followed by injection that's a different dosing than psoriasis. That's 90 milligrams every eight weeks. Similar to what we've learned about anti-TNF, we know many patients are going to need more. Uh, which is off-label but important, and it has a very low risk of immunogenicity. We've been very pleased with that overall, and in the clinical trials that was true, and in the real world it seems to be true as well. So the studies to pay attention to were the induction studies, and then there was subsequent maintenance follow-up. I'm not here to get into all the details of that except to show you one of the very important lessons we've learned in our field, which is that patients who are uh, anti-TNF naive do better in general if they are receiving these therapies, any new therapy, than patients who've already been exposed to therapies, usually have failed those therapies and then gotten into the clinical trials. So unique to the way the Ustekinumab study in Crohn's disease was designed, Unity 2 was only in TNF-naive patients. So specifically, um, and of those on, in Unity 1, they included TNF-exposed and maybe a few TNF-naive. And relevant to the question I asked you at the beginning, so you'll remember it, um, in the TNF-naive patients who got the 6 milligrams per kilogram dosing, it's all the way to the right there in blue, they had a 40% um, response rate or remission rate, uh, which was very significant and important to keep in mind. So we'll come back to that um, compared to the placebo of 19.6%, but that was the answer to the question we were getting at. So that's not too bad. Um, and again, it has to do with being TNF naive. So then the question always becomes, which patients do you give ustekinumab before you give anti-TNF? And we can think a little bit about that. Now, I'll also tell you that the phase three studies of ustekinumab and ulcerative colitis are completed and have been presented, and it's expected to receive regulatory approval by the end of this year, so it will be available in ulcerative colitis. Safety looks excellent, uh, similar to placebo. Very low immunogenicity, as I mentioned. Great for skin and bowel, as many of you in the room know. Um, maybe not as good for joints, as I think many of you uh, know, and it was actually a rheumatologist who taught me about that initially. Now, anti-integrin therapies, this is something you may not know as much about because of what you do and versus the GIs. Um, the first one available, which people tend to forget about, was natalizumab, uh, originally approved for the treatment of multiple sclerosis, still being used for that, and for Crohn's disease. Nata is an alpha-4, sorry, an alpha-1-beta-7, no, alpha-4-beta-1 and alpha-4-beta-7 inhibitor. And because of that, it both inhibits leukocyte um, migration in the central nervous system and in the bowel. Um, so it essentially blocks lymphocytes from leaving capillaries and entering the, um, the gut space. Vito, on the other hand, does not have any impact on the central nervous system. It's the first drug that got approved for Crohn's and colitis at the same time, and it only works on the intestinal system. Uh, it has no impact on the central nervous system, which means it doesn't have the progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy concerns that we saw with natalizumab. What we've learned about Vito and IBD is that it works quite well in Crohn's and UC. It may take a little longer, maybe because it's a cellular mechanism of action rather than a cytokine mechanism. That's a theory. Uh, it has a very uh, excellent safety profile, which you would expect because it's organ selective. Um, and it has very low immunogenicity as well. And for the most part, we're encouraging people to use it monotherapy unless it's a very complicated patient because once you add an immunomodulator to it, you've essentially erased the safety profile of it. Uh, so we're trying to select those patients properly. And it's probably not for the patient who has significant joint problems or skin problems that coexist with their gut 
There are some attempts to look at it as a treatment for PSC in the liver because it does target that organ as well. Um, but so far, those studies have either been negative or even shown a mild increase in liver enzymes. So that's not entirely clear yet. And just as an aside, very interestingly, um, betalizumab seems to have a, uh, an impact on lymphocytes that are infected with HIV and augment treatment of HIV. So there's a whole other area of investigation going on with this treatment, and um, that's a side mention. Now, with vetalizumab, we actually have our first head-to-head -head study in the IBD space. I know you and psoriasis and rheumatology have had some. Um, this was our first. So they're comparing veto to adalimumab. This was just presented at the European Crohn's and Colitis meeting uh, in February uh, and, or March. And you can see here that uh, vetalizumab was statistically significantly better than adalimumab at achieving the primary endpoint of clinical remission and mucosal healing. Uh, at week 52. Uh, you also should know, however, that patients were not TNF-naive. Um, they were just adalimumab-naive. So that's a distinction that will be fleshed out in the final manuscript. You should also know that they didn't show steroid-sparing benefits of one drug over the other in this analysis. So there's more that we need to understand about it, but it certainly is helpful for us to start comparing these therapies and thinking carefully about which drugs we might use based on these other properties. Tofacitinib is now available, just approved last year for moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. I know that you're aware of this. You just had lunch and learned about it in rheumatoid arthritis. In the UC space, it's dosed a little differently. The induction strategy is 10 milligrams twice daily for eight weeks. And in maintenance phase, you actually have an option of five or 10 milligrams twice daily. And that's because in the analysis of the clinical trials, patients who had failed anti-TNF therapies did better with 10 BID in maintenance. And the FDA acknowledged that, and they provided uh, flexible dosing in the label. There's also something called delayed response that was demonstrated with tofacitinib, which means that if the patient is not in remission by the end of eight weeks, the FDA in label said that you can give another eight weeks and treat for 16 weeks to see how they do. We've learned a lot about tofa. Um, these are the data looking at clinical remission and then mucosal healing. Uh, and in general, one of the things we recognize about this oral therapy is that it's quite rapidly onset in our patients with UC. I happen to have a bias towards using small molecules like this one in people with bad UC for the reason that Diane was talking about. Um, we think that one of the reasons they may have a low albumin is because they may be leaking protein. So avoiding protein-based therapies in the form of our monoclonal antibodies in favor of small molecules, whether it's TOFA or in our world, cyclosporin, seems like a reasonable thing, especially in our sick UC patients, and we've been doing that. So what we've learned, it's fast. It's used as a monotherapy, unlike rheumatoid arthritis, where methotrexate is often added to it. We have that flexible dosing. Of course, there is the risk of herpes zoster. In the UC trials, the risk in the, in the induction period of eight weeks was 1%. In maintenance, it was 5% during that longer period of exposure, and it was increased with the 10 milligram BID, so it's a dose-related problem. Um, we are vaccinating all of our patients with the recombinant um, zoster vaccine. And of course, uh, I think most of you know that there was a recent report um, in the follow-up and surveillance safety of VTEs in RA patients. So lastly, let's talk about how we're going to overcome some of our challenges. Okay, so how do we optimize treatment? So treating earlier, we know, is uh, very effective in our field, and we'll talk about that. Combining therapies when appropriate, but not always. 
embracing surgery when it's needed and when it will reset the disease is certainly a very important thing that I don't think we do often enough. TDM, especially for our high-risk patients, and I know that DERM and ROOM are not doing it as often or at all, um, and choosing therapies and trying to sequence wisely based on what we know. This is a study that we did a number of years ago using claims data. Uh, so the one challenge to using claims data to, to assess IBD is you can't adjust for disease severity. All we knew, though, is the sequencing of therapy. And to be honest with you, the hypothesis when we designed this study was that patients who got TNF inhibitors early, in other words, in the sequencing of their therapies, they got it first, must have been sicker because if the community um, gastros were prescribing TNF out of the gate, they must be sick. And our hypothesis was that if you are treating early in the community currently, it's because the patients are sick and you may not see the same benefit of top-down strategies rather than what was done in the clinical trials. And we were actually wrong. Patients who got TNF early, regardless of disease severity, which we couldn't adjust, were less likely to have loss of response to therapy as measured by change to another drug, were less likely to have Crohn's-related surgery, and were less likely to end up hospitalized. So we actually showed that without knowing all the details about these patients, in aggregate in this very large analysis, patients who got TNF inhibitors early were less likely to have all those outcomes. So this was another way to support the idea of treating earlier in our field. In addition, we've learned um, in all of our studies now that if you have patients who are TNF naive and you give them vetolizumab or you give them ustekinumab, or as I'm going to show you on the next slide, you give them tofacitinib, those patients always do better. So it may just be the design of the trials that patients who failed multiple treatments and are otherwise sicker and more resistant to therapy um, are going to do better than those patients, are going to do worse than those patients who come into the trials earlier in their disease course. Or there may be something biologically relevant about this, getting exposed to anti-TNF and having progression of disease or changes in the immune pathway in some way that we don't fully understand. Whatever it is, we recognize that if you're going to use one of these other drugs first, it's going to change your ability to interpret them. And now we also have good data to say um, that the opposite may be true as well. So this may not just be that it's avoid TNF and give these drugs, because I don't think that's the right message. It may be just that whatever drug you use first is going to be the best drug, and we have to use it properly and use it earlier. Here's the same data with tofacitinib. This has not been fully published yet, but you can see on the right that those who had not already failed a TNF inhibitor did better with TOFA. So the last point um, regarding this has to do with using therapeutic drug monitoring. I could never do the topic justice uh, after um, hearing Diane speak, but I will tell you that there are data now, and in our field we're adopting post-loading doses, which predict, or drug levels, which predict the likelihood of staying in remission out to a year. So for Crohn's disease, a week 14 infliximab level can tell you what's going to happen in a year, and you can adjust to be more proactive. And in ulcerative colitis, a week 8 infliximab level. And now there are data for adalimumab as well, not surprisingly. So we're starting to learn more about how to do this. And we can even um, look to a study that was referenced by Diane as well, where they measured stool levels of drug. And we can see where the drug's going. It's not just getting cleared and metabolized in other ways. It's literally leaking into the toilet. So we explain that to patients, and they're always happy to hear that their very expensive drug is getting flushed down the toilet. Um, we've also learned in our field, and these are now older data, that combining with an immunomodulator can raise drug levels and is associated with better clinical outcomes. So this is true in Crohn's, in what we call a landmark study, uh, SONIC, and also in ulcerative colitis, similar designs. 
The very interesting thing that came out of this, though, was most recently um, a post hoc analysis which demonstrated exactly what Diane taught you, which is that it was the drug level of infliximab not being on combination therapy that was most predictive of clinical outcomes. So it's, um, in my practice, the way I've interpreted this is that when I use anti-TNF therapy, I use combination therapy initially, and then I use drug levels, and if the patient's otherwise stable and doing quite well, and their level's okay, I'm feeling good withdrawing the combined immunomodulator and following up with uh, ongoing drug and disease monitoring. So this is a very important point that came out of this, and I know Diane was part of that as well. What about surgery? Well, I'm just gonna show you one slide, um, but this is important. This was a study in Europe where they randomized patients with Crohn's to infliximab or to a, um, a laparoscopic ileocecal resection. So remember, the most common type of Crohn's is in the ileum, and that these patients often need surgery. And what you can see from the results of the Lyric trial, that is an exclamation point in the name, it's not a typo, very annoying actually, um, that uh, at the end of uh, two years and three years and even four years of follow-up, quality of life was similar overall, but disease-related quality of life was better in the group that got surgery. Uh, and of course, costs were much less in the group that got surgery. So there's some benefit to getting control of the disease early rather than giving patients medicine when we're behind and trying to treat fibrosis with anti-inflammatory therapies. So we have to choose those patients, but we've gotten so much better at preventing after surgery, and I know Miguel Riguero gave you a nice lecture on that, that we can do this now and feel confident we're gonna get our patients under control. So my very last slide before I wrap up is really about this. Uh, these other topics. I could go on and on, so I at least wanted to give you a full few bullet points of other things you may be hearing about or asked about. One is fecal transplantation, or what officially is called fecal microbiota transplantation, and maybe transplant isn't even the right word, but you get the idea. Uh, and it's now been studied in four different randomized trials um, in ulcerative colitis, and you might ask, what are they being randomized to other than the fecal transplant? It's usually their own stool, but in Australia, they actually did one where they used essentially saline that had been odorized and colorized to look like stool, and I don't know how they came up with that. Um, but there was some signal in all these trials to suggest it may work in some people, but it's not durable and it hasn't been shown to be convincingly steroid sparing. It's not, um, there's not a uniform approach to it, and the FDA still says that it's experimental. So this is not an option other than for C. difficile infections. Dietary interventions, of course, everyone with GI problems and especially our IBD population wants to know how to do that. There is now an NIH-funded study in Crohn's disease comparing the Mediterranean-style diet versus the specific carbohydrate diet that is ongoing. Other than that, we don't have a dietary intervention in adults especially that has been shown to do much. And then there's a variety of other therapies and potential targets. One of the theories that keeps coming up is that uh, Crohn's must be a mycobacterial infection and a recent um, industry-sponsored study of triple therapy against mycobacterial uh, did have a signal at 16 weeks, but not one at the end of one year, and there's a lot more going on. We haven't seen the manuscript or any of the other data yet. So um, just how do you do all this? One of our challenges, and I'm sure in your fields as well, but is that we really need to work with all of you and with all of our colleagues in order to take care of these complex patients, and that's a really important point that I always end my talks with. So in summary, um, we've really talked about quite a bit. We've talked about the moving targets and the moving goals of more objective measures of management. I've gone over a lot of different therapies and the importance of understanding if we don't know necessarily which drugs to use first, how we can optimize them or think about how we're gonna use them 
otherwise, um, and we certainly have made great progress in IBD. Absolutely. Thank you. So the question is uh, that I didn't mention smoking, um, and it's a big deal. Uh, we know very well that the, the strongest environmental trigger uh, in Crohn's and in UC is uh, smoking or becoming an ex-smoker. So if you're a patient with Crohn's and you smoke, it makes the disease harder to treat, more resistant to treat, more likely to have surgery, more likely to need repeat surgeries. Um, so people who, have smoke, who are smokers with Crohn's should quit, and there's now data to suggest they get better in the way they respond to therapy. What you're asking about is ulcerative colitis. So there's a group of people who, when they quit smoking, they develop new ulcerative colitis, and the observation has been made that when they resume smoking, they go right into remission and they don't need any medicine. Um, the, the dose of cigarettes that um, patients are on before they quit is predictive of the likelihood of having the problem, meaning heavier smokers are more likely to develop ex-smoking-associated ulcerative colitis, and the dose needed to keep them in remission, if it's this treatment of, uh, strategy, um, is about a half a pack or, or less a day. Um, obviously, that's not the strategy. So you asked about nicotine. Nicotine patches, nicotine gum, and even a study of nicotine enemas have not shown efficacy. And that's either because it's the wrong drug or it's the dosing. So um, smokers get spikes of nicotine in their blood 20 times a day or more. And it may be that the patches and gum and, and enemas are just giving them low levels and uh, serum levels and plateauing. But that's not been helpful. So we don't recommend people start smoking again um, uh, for the obvious reasons. Uh, but when they have done that, we never worry that they're going to miss a maintenance dose. Thanks. Thanks.